heard a lot about this uh, show, the ex-candidates. This has been a pretty thorough interview. These institutions which we've been told to respect and trust are actually completely untrustworthy. Have you confirmed that you are negative before attending tonight if you are unvaccinated? I still see people with masks on and driving and they're in the car by themselves. So you can pay my electricity bill, you think, that was spared. We're teaching them about what it means to be a pansexual instead of teaching them how to do your taxes. It's no for me. I say no to the boys. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Ex-Candidates. My name is Stephen Tripp and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Adam Zara. How are you tonight, Adam? How was your week? Oh yeah, pretty good, Stephen. How are you going, mate? Yeah, pretty good. And, my week uh, was all right. <laughs> <laughs> back at work. Back at work. <laughs> and uh, also a good friend of ours as well, uh, we've uh, asked him to come on, Paul Vallejo, uh, former uh, NASA aerospace engineer and he's very well versed in uh, all things pandemic and vaccines so how are you tonight paul yeah doing really well thank you it's great to see you guys yeah great thank you thank you for coming on and on tonight's guest uh, i consider him to be one of the unsung heroes of the pandemic uh from my perspective when i was uh about to lose my job and uh you know being forced into the consideration of having to take a vaccine I heard about this Australian uh, professor who was out there promoting his own vaccine. Unfortunately, you would assume that the, the Australian government would jump on board and be right behind him, but unfortunately it didn't pan out that way. And, uh, you know, I, I, I felt that if I was, uh, to, you know, in a situation where I was going to have to take the vaccine, uh, his one would be the one that I would choose. So it did give me a little bit of hope. Uh, that uh, I could kind of navigate my way through things. But as it turns out, um, I lost my job and uh, didn't have to take the vaccine. So that's where we're at at the moment. <laughs> but uh, Professor Petrovsky, thank you very much for coming on. How are you tonight? Uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, it's always tough on a, a Sunday evening. <laughs> but uh, looking forward to having a chat. Yeah, great. Thank you. Yeah, awesome. So uh, just for people that might not know you, and I know Paul was one of them, so we've tried to uh, uh, get him caught up on who you are. Can you give us a bit of a brief brief, brief uh, background of who you are and, uh, and your credentials? So my background is as a physician. Um, I'm a clinical endocrinologist, which means I look after patients with diabetes, thyroid disease and hormone problems. Uh, but I also, after finishing my medical training, um, did a, a PhD in immunology at the Walter and Liza Hall Institute in Melbourne, which is a very famous uh, immunology institute. And so I've sort of worn multiple hats ever since because I, my, my, I built a research team um, around, you know, immunology themes, which, of course, encompasses vaccines, but also type 1 diabetes and a whole range of uh, endocrine disorders which have uh, immune significance. But, but, you know, over the last 20 years or so, my research increasingly focused on, on vaccines, and part of that was driven by the fact I was successful in getting a very large US government um, grant, um, you know, about 20 years ago now, um, uh, which uh, was to develop a SARS coronavirus vaccine out of all, all, you know, again, the world has an amazing way of, of circling back. But, um, you know, I was struggling to get funding in Australia at the time. You know, it is a bit of an old boys club here. 
um, and I wasn't part of, you know, in, in that club fully. Uh, and, um, and, and so this was just one of those um, rare moments where, where in a, a point of madness you, you apply to something that um, shouldn't be, um, you know, accessible to you um, and, and end up winning it, and, and that's what happened with us. So, so because I've been ever since funded by the US government, um, you know, multiple times now, with very large uh, grants and contracts, which have been focused on vaccines, not surprisingly. Um, you know, a lot of my life is taken up with vaccines, particularly like now when we're dealing with a, a pandemic, because that's really what we've been training to do for the last 20 years. But of course, alongside that, um, I still am a doctor and like to do those sorts of things. And I also like to, to do basic science research, which um, unfortunately has been put on hold for the last couple of years. But, but you know, we still are very interested in what causes type 1 diabetes, how do we prevent diabetes, how do we treat Alzheimer's disease. We have a cancer vaccine that's actually in human trials. So <laughs> we have a lot of balls in the air. So long answer to a short question, I guess, is, yeah, I wear many hats and do lots of things, but the last three years it's been all about um, the pandemic. Um, yeah. Not yeah. just obviously from the vaccine side, but also obviously in terms of policy, which, you know, I've, I've obviously disagreed with some of the, you know, um, I guess, health department and government policies, which I think they've got wrong. And, and so I felt I was obliged to speak out as an expert in this area over the last 20 years. I was obviously a bit concerned some of my colleagues were just being silent. They'd, they'd say things in private about how uncomfortable they were about where some of these policies were going, but no one was prepared to speak up. So maybe again in That's my case. doing so. You know, I really am as just a human being living in Australia, very grateful for your courage for speaking out because you're right, there are a lot of people who haven't. So thank you. Yeah, and, and again, I don't believe I'm speaking for myself. I'm speaking for all my silent colleagues who are too scared to, to say boo to a goose, but I know what they think because, you know, they'll express that privately. So I see my role as, as not just communicating my views but actually... <laughs> you know, some quite mainstream views that just aren't being voiced, which I think, again, people are entitled to hear. But, you know, there's been a lot of censorship. There's, there's been a lot of fear put into my colleagues that their, their lives will be destroyed, their careers will be destroyed, um, you know, their medical registrations will be removed, they'll never get another government grant for the rest of their lives. You know, uh, don't discount the fact that that silence is not because they want to be silent. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's because, you know, the fear of God has been put into them uh, of the consequences if they speak out, and I think, you know. So just, just on that, um, Dr. Petrovsky, um, did you think that, you know, being an Australian and living in Australia and being successful in Australia, that, you know, in 2023 or 2021, that it would come down to this where, you know, professional medical doctors and experts such as yourself would be silenced by, in essence, the government? No. Look, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm a 
very proud Australian and, you know, I spend a lot of time travelling and talking in countries all around the world um, and, and promoting just what a wonderful country Australia is and just what a free country and um, that, you know, we, we, aren't, we haven't had the restrictions and, um, that, that are imposed in a lot of other countries. Um, and so I, I was probably at least as shocked, if not more shocked than anyone, at what has transpired in the last three years. I mean, we've been living in a totalitarian system that, you know, I've visited communist you know, countries going back 30 years ago and, you know, we all considered them really hardcore. I mean, they look enlightened, you know, when we look now at Australia and what's been happening in Australia in three years, we, we have, you know, gone way beyond what any of those totalitarian regimes tried to achieve. I mean, it's, it's truly terrifying. Yeah, um, if if we if we can go back three years, uh, and we'll we'll talk about your vaccine and get into it. But I just want to start off with this. Now, obviously, we were fed the whole uh, you know bat theory of the origins of COVID. It came from a bat. I've actually heard you say that COVID is actually a perfect human virus, like it's adapted perfectly to humans. And um, if, if I can get you to explain how you came to that uh, conclusion, but it's come out through the FBI and different sources now where the, the lab leak theory is actually become more the credible theory. Uh, but if you really take that into account, if that's true and it did come from the lab leak, then the whole world, every word, every person in the world has been exposed to a bioweapon essentially. Yet there doesn't seem to be any accountability around that. Where Where is the outrage from that? You know, this is something that, I guess has never happened in the history of mankind that we've been exposed to something that is not natural. Uh, why? Why do you think that is? Do you think people are just kind of like over it already, and they, you know, they, well, they're not really realizing the significance of this? Well, I, I think it, it. You know, you have to appreciate this is a, it's a really complex topic, and I I don't profess to know the origins of COVID, and I. You know, most people on the planet can't say they know the origins of COVID. So it's still a completely open question. So I don't want to be sort of trapped into any particular yeah, yeah, perspective. Sure. What what our research showed, we, we use supercomputers to analyse viruses and we use that in our, our vaccine research. And so right back 2020, you know, first few weeks of 2020, I saw some sort of this idea that there was an outbreak occurring in China. It wasn't in the mainstream media at that point. Um, then, the you know, the, the sequence of the virus was released in mid-January. Um, still no one was making much, uh, uh, you know, about this. I mean, WHO, if anything, were trying to, to you know, sort of um, suggest this wasn't a terribly serious outbreak. It, looked awfully serious to me, I'd have to say, from, from the information I could gather and knowing what we knew about SARS and MERS and other coronaviruses. I mean, this, you know, and I think on social media I was posting back in January saying, I think this is going to be a pandemic. Mm. WHO saying, no, 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 nothing to worry about. Everyone go home. Don't worry about this. I mean, um, but in, in any event, we, you know, we decided to go against the narrative and start developing a vaccine because time is everything. So although everyone was saying it wasn't a concern, 
we said, let you know, right, we're just going to put everything into this um, because apart from anything, um, if it turns into a pandemic, you know, we don't want to have wasted a few months um, waiting for, for that to become obvious. So we immediately set about analysing this gene sequence because that's all we had. We didn't have a virus. We just had a string of, of alphabet. But fortunately, with our supercomputers, we could turn that into a virus um, using actually SARS as our model and taking the, um, the, the DNA of SARS and comparing it to the DNA of this new virus and then modelling the proteins that we believed made up this new virus um, and then working out how this virus was infecting humans, um, which was through the, what we call the ACE2 receptor, which is a protein on the surface of human cells. So, so we did all that in a matter of weeks and, and got our vaccine happening. And then, you know, having put all of this effort into building these supercomputer models, as like all scientists, you go, is there something else I could be using this for? Because I've put a lot of effort in. And I thought, well, you know, there's a lot of discussion going on about what animal this virus came from. You know, the, some people were saying, you know, it was uh, a pangolin, which is a like an anteater. Um, others were saying snakes and, and you know, uh, mice and, and, and then various animals in China because this is where the outbreak happened. You know, we know that SARS was transmitted by a civet cat, for instance, so we thought, right, well, we, we've got the genomic sequence of, of this protein ACE2 from all these species because just about every species on the planet has now been sequenced. So for the first time in history, you know, we, we do have, have the genetic structure of all the species. And we thought, well, a really interesting experiment, and I think we were the first in the world to ever have done this in history, is is to say, well, let's work out where the virus came from by modelling all of these different species, getting their ACE2, modelling it, and seeing how well the virus binds to the ACE2. Because whatever species the virus is adapted and has come from, it should be perfectly adapted for that species. That's how viruses, you know, we know viruses like one species over another, and that becomes their, their niche. So we thought this is this this is a cool experiment. We can find the niche. We can find this um, you know missing animal that everyone's speculating about. So so we ran them all over a matter of a month or two. Uh, takes a lot of computational power, but at the end of it, we, we sort of got the analysis of all of the different ACE two proteins from all of these exotic animals, um, and of course we did human because. Um, that was meant to be like a benchmark and we thought, well, human will be somewhere in the middle because, you know, the virus has only just crossed to humans. We, like everyone, believe that to be the case because that's how other pandemics have happened. So a priori, we didn't start with any assumption other than this came from an animal. Um, but lo and behold, when we, we put all of them up together, um, the humans were standing way out at the top of the list. I mean, the virus looked like it, it had been evolved and adapted specifically for humans and every other animal was was you know below that. So if you if you followed our original reasoning, which is that whatever came out at the top of the list was where the virus came from, 
that said it came from humans. humans. And, of course, that, that, that was the big story in our, our paper, uh, which we tried to publish and got blocked left, right and centre. And then, and then we started to realise there's a conspiracy going on here. Here's an innocent paper that no one's ever questioned the science. We weren't making any outrageous claims, just saying this is the surprising result. We don't know, you know, what it means. And it took us over a year to get that paper published at a time when people were accepting papers in days because anything topical related to COVID was, was high profile. So the journals were lapping this sort of data up. They, and, but when we saw they were just blocking us and determined never to allow this paper to get published, we realised there was something really serious going on. Uh, in the world because, again, we were submitting it to journals in, in different continents and, and the, the reactions were the same. It was a very coordinated campaign and, and, and then I think over the subsequent year or so it started to become very clear who was running this campaign, you know, the level at which they were running it and it was all about creating a single narrative. Um, yeah. And that then played itself out on a whole lot of other fronts, which was extraordinary. So here we were innocently just looking at the origins of the virus and finding that there was censorship and, um, you know, the coordinated global campaign to control information and only let some information out. Then we say, saw the same things happening with vaccines, with mandates. You know, it was basically the same people. Who, yeah. who were running these narratives, um, you know, because exactly. you can't imagine there were three or four different groups running these massive global. It, it basically was the same four people um, controlling the media and the messaging. And, and again, I think we're starting to see who, who those players were now. Uh, that in those early instances, they weren't as visible as maybe they now are. I'm very interested in, in, in what you found about who is the wizard behind the curtain. I mean, the attack on the people who did the Great Barrington Declaration, the people who sidelined your paper, other, you know, uh, people deplatformed uh, who have vast resumes, Peter McCullough and, and, and many others, um, you know, the, the kind of power it takes to exert that kind of narrative control over scientists and media um, are you willing to share with us what your best guess is at this point about that? Well, I, I mean, think, I, yeah, I think it's clear that, that you wield that power if, if you control very large organisations that, that are extremely powerful. So I don't think I need to name any names, but if you think of big global bodies that wield enormous power within science um, and within science funding, um, you know, um, you'd be, you know, you wouldn't have to look very far to come up with five or six um, prominent names. Um, yeah, but but it, it, it obviously, yeah, was, and, and again, it, it's not, we're not discussing motives. I mean, you know, no. often... The motives, you know, I believe, and I'm different to everyone else. I think these people, you know, for the most part, had good motives, but but I think they didn't realise the the damage that's done by doing the things that they did. But but you know, again, it's like public health, you know, 
clinicians getting together and deciding to mandate um, things left, right and centre. I, I don't think they do it because, you know, they're relatives of Hitler initially. I think they do it because at the time they think, you know, I, I need to do something. Um, I think this is a good idea. Um, I think that, you know, the, um, yeah, it, it, the motives are initially generally good, maybe badly thought through, but motives are good. So I, I know a lot of people, you know, say a lot of negative things about motives, but I, I'm not in that camp. But I, I think some terrible things have been done with Doctor, good motives. Dr. Brotrovsky, so just back onto your point about transmissibility and that how that you're, you're just from comparing all the genetic sequences of animals and humans and how it was so aligned with humans, um, SARS-CoV-2. Um, is SARS-CoV-2 transmissible to other animals or found in other animals other than humans at this stage that you know of? Yeah, so um, we actually have a project running around Australia with all the Australian zoos who um, one, one are actually using um, our vaccine um, to protect their um, susceptible animals. Um, so, so the answer to that is yes. Um, a, a lot of species of, of animals are now susceptible. And, and what you have to remember is the virus has mutated enormously in humans. And as essentially as we see it from our data now using humans as a, a launching pad um, to launch into a whole range of new species. Um, and so we're now the vector. <laughs> right. Um, because because they don't again it, it, it's uh, you know the consequences of that are unknown and they're scary um, but no um, what we know is that there's about 35 species that if you go now to you know um, official government websites like CDC where where you know they have definitive evidence of animals infected with COVID, so there's about 35. The truth from our data is it's, it's, it's much, much bigger than that. And I suspect there may not be any animals on the planet that will be necessarily immune to COVID. Um, it, it's such a um, seditious virus that, um, you know, I think it will find ways to, to infect just about everything on the planet. Um, which, which is different, again, to a lot of other viruses that stick within niches. Um, COVID is not like that. And, and we've already seen that, for instance, with, with our data, you know, in 2020 we showed it couldn't infect mice and, and in fact, the Chinese scientists who had the virus showed you couldn't infect mice with it. Um, now you can. So the current strains like Omicron um, that are now circulating in humans can easily infect mice. So that, that shows you over just the space of that couple of years how the virus is now able to go out and find additional species. But certainly big cats, so all the cat family are highly susceptible. Um, so everything from your domestic cat to tigers, lions, um, leopards. Um, and in fact, there have been um, a number of deaths of, of leopards um, in, in zoos around the world. Um, who've got co who've acquired COVID, and that's why we've had this program in the Australian zoos. And one of the first groups of animals that they were giving our vaccine to, because 
They, of course, wanted a really safe vaccine because these are pretty precious animals. So that was a, 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 a coup, I guess, or a tick that, that they decided that ours was a great vaccine and, and certainly had the safety data behind it to give to their, their big cats. But since then, they've branched out. Um, and are now giving it to a whole range of, of other animals um, that are known to be susceptible. Well, well, let's let's talk a little bit about, about your vaccine. Why is it so different and unique compared to the ones being pushed upon the general public? Well, the strange thing is, it's it's, it's it shouldn't be unique because it's 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 the, the typical technology that we've been using to make vaccines for for the last you know 20, 30 years. Um, so it, it's state of the art, but but it's not new. Um, and, uh, you know, it's considered protein-based vaccines are still considered the best vaccines. Um, you know, the uh, human papillomavirus vaccine that we give to all the young girls, the hepatitis B vaccine that everyone on the planet gets as a young child, these are all protein-based vaccines. So we know they're very effective. We know they're very safe. So what's unusual here is the the technology that you would expect would be the one that would have been rolled out first and because it, it's it's got that track record, it's known to be safe, it's known to be effective, you would think that that would have been the one and, and we would have assumed similarly that it would be the one that everyone would have jumped on, the government would have jumped on. Um, but we all got caught out Um by, you know, these vaccines from left field that none of us, you know, had very much experience in. We played with mRNA a little bit over recent years, but it didn't take it seriously. It had too many bugs and um, it was just way too early in its infancy, or at least that's what we thought. And, and obviously other experts in the field like Rob Malone similarly thought um, but obviously, you know, other people had other ideas and those technologies were taken from nowhere and basically just driven, um, you know. Into people's arms. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, exactly, with, with, with nothing in between. I mean, no, it, was, here you it, go. It, it was sort of an overnight, you know, my God, what the hell just happened? Um, so in saying that, time frame-wise, 18 months. Just got jabbed and we, we thought this was still 10, 15 years away from being ready for, you know, uh, for use. So, so yeah, we were all shocked and stunned, but, but we didn't realise just the powerful forces that were behind that that um, were determined to do that no matter who stood in the way. And... Obviously, we learned that if you stand in the way of that monster, you know, you are going to get crushed And, and uh, because in no uncertain terms, once, once the, you know, that momentum built up, there was nothing that was going to stop it. And I think, you know, again, it, it, uh, those in the vaccine field are still left sort of wondering what the hell happened. Uh, because because it wasn't what we were expecting or would have predicted. That's right. Because as far as time time frame goes, and um, let's say the, I mean the vaccine was developed within what six months or eight uh, six months. Okay, so this is a new. So we know that mRNA technology was used as gene therapy, you know, in the cancer world and things like that, but it was never used as a vaccine. So basically, we've 
tried to appropriate, you know, like like a tradie would use, you know, the back of his cordless drill as a hammer to tap something in. So you've basically done that with uh, gene therapy and then you've gone, hey, wait a minute, let's just use it for this because why not? And let's get it into people's arms super quick. So I had arguments with families saying they go, it's been developed, everyone knows about this and that. Now, you're saying that, you know, with um, a protein-based vaccine, which your vaccine is, because it's traditionally used, it's been used for 20 years, we know you can you, you can kind of predict effects and adverse reactions that you might expect. And then you could go, well, you know, benefit, cost analysis, you know what I mean? Like SARS-CoV-2 is pretty bad. Um, you know, if you're over 82 or something like that, it probably kill you. So what happens is you should get this, the vaccine's worth it. Um, so what happens is using um, technology that we, we know, um, you can predict that it's pretty safe and it should be good. But using a brand new technology straight out of the bat, it's basically never been used in this way before. Um, you, there's no prediction. There's no, it's, it's very hard. There's no way to assume anything. People could have grown horns and you wouldn't, have, you wouldn't have known it in essence. So, you know, like, so I, I too am, am, am worrisome about this is why I asked about the animal question because are they going to use mRNA technology to vaccinate all these animals or would they prefer to use something like yourself, like, like a, a protein-based vaccine? So, yeah, I think, you know, that's the thing. I mean, you know, mRNA may be the greatest thing since sliced bread. I, I doubt it. I, I, I have serious doubts about that, but, but it may be. But, but the real concern is that we simply don't know. And, you know, that, that inherently means accepting risks that, that there's something we don't know. Um, and in science, you learn there are more things you don't know than things you know. And so for anyone to say, oh, you've give, we've given it to a few people before, you know, I think probably in total in world's history, 100 people might have had it, as you say, for wow. cancer and, and this sort of thing in the past. So we're talking minuscule numbers. To go from that to giving it to 6 billion people, not really with any certainty that you know what it might do in two years, 10 years, 20 years, over a lifetime, um, is, you know, the biggest experiment with the human population that's ever been conducted. I think Greg Hunt <laughs> it was the person who said that. Now, maybe yeah. he was saying, you know, saying it innocently, but he said this is the biggest experiment, you know, that's ever been conducted, and it's true, and that's what scares the living daylights out of Rob Malone and Peter McCulloch and myself who come from within the field is you can't just experiment with with every person on the planet at the same time because if that experiment goes wrong there's no rolling it back um, and and that's extraordinary and that's normally why regulators you know stall us for 10 15 years you know when we develop a new vaccine and this is going back pre 2020, you know, it would take 15, 20 years typically to get that vaccine approved. And now it wasn't that we hadn't got the vaccine done in a few years. It was the regulators, again, just stalling the process, saying we need, you know, we need time, we need more time, we need more data. 
because they understood that until you have that 5, 10, 15, 20 years of data on a group of people, there's still just too much risk and uncertainty. And so they would, they would basically stall you, even if, if you had it all developed in a few years, they would stall you deliberately for another 15 um, until they were confident and, and at that point you got approval. Huh. Now, that's the way we've all grown up and, and, and so to have this situation where after six months, particularly with a new technology, not even an old technology rebuilt, which would they would still hold up for 10 or 15 years, but here we're talking completely new, unknown technology. To have that, you know, rolled out and, and in six months and, and no questions asked about, you know, well, we don't have any long-term follow-up. Well, Can you talk about some of the dangers of the mRNA platform? There, there are a number of concerns that seem to be specific to to this new uh, this platform. One is um, potential for autoimmunity, right? Is that, is it, would you agree that that's one concern because you're having cells internally create an antigen? And then, you know, the, the different, like, and I think you'd probably be fairly, very, very uniquely or well-placed to, to talk about how that might cr create an autoimmune condition. Uh, so uh, what are some of the concerns uh, are the uh, uh, auto potential for autoimmunity, the fact that the lipid nanoparticle travels everywhere in your body and causes internal cell destruction in various parts of the body uh, and DNA contamination. Uh, also, I think is, is is an issue. Can you just talk about some of the unique concerns uh, of of the mRNA platform that can lead to to dangers? Well, you know, again, I, I don't want to get too drawn. I mean, what what I would say is that you know, normally when we have a new technology, and you know, this would apply if we've got a, a new you know jumbo aircraft or whatever. It's never been built before. Um, so you're doing it for the first time. Your job is to try and imagine everything that could go wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, you come up with hundreds of, of potential scenarios. And then, then you, you, you know, explore is that a possibility, like you stress test and you yeah. run simulations. Um, and, and similarly we do that with, with a new technology you know, typically, as I say, um, it, it, I don't believe it was done with mRNA, and that's what what is concerning. Where we do a whole lot of experiments, as you say, giving it to mice that get autoimmune diabetes, and asking, well, you know, if if we put it into those genetically susceptible mice, what will happen? Um, so. So you're right, normally we would stress test the technology and, and put it in into all of those different experiments to find out what could go wrong. Here they, they took the choice. They said, we don't want to know, mm. right? The people approving it said, we don't want you to put it into mice that get diabetes. Or we don't, It's a bit like saying we want you to build a jumbo and we don't want you to test any of the systems. Because we don't want to know what could go wrong, right? We just want to fly it and we want to, you know, and we want everyone in the world to get on that one jumbo and go on the, the, the maiden flight. You know what I mean? But we're not going to test any of the systems because, to be honest, we don't want to know what could go wrong. 
So, so that's my perspective. So when you say, well, could, you know, cause all of it, 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 you know, like any technology, it could cause anything. And I have not seen any good data to say any of these things were tested for or excluded before it was given to billions of people. And I, that, to me, is a, a massive concern. But as to what it may or may not do, again, it's all speculation. Normally, we wouldn't need to speculate because all of those experiments, that testing would have been done. Um, here is a situation where I can't tell you what it will do. I don't believe anyone can tell you what it might do because no testing has been done. It's, it's, well, well, it's just truly extraordinary. Some of the testing, like the biodistribution, you know, the idea, some of the claims that it would stay in the arm and then it wouldn't, you know, and then it would be gone in a couple of days. Some some things have been proven false, have they not? Yeah, unfortunately, there there has been a lot of misinformation, as you say, because, you know, there, there, there was a cursory amount of testing um, that was done, um, not looking, as you say, at potential things going wrong, but just, just characterising it, as you say, when you inject it, where, where does it go? Um, it wasn't made publicly available, but it has filtered through um, from the various regulatory filings. And, and clearly, you know, what that information shows and what was being publicly claimed by, you know, politicians, public health experts, and to some extent, the companies themselves don't match up at all, as you say. So, so there were mistruths um, and misinformation um, that were, were told. So the two biggest ones, um, which, which are just glaring, I mean, you know, and still need to be publicly corrected, um, are the idea that mRNA, you know, is degraded within a few minutes in the human body. That is true of, of, of real human mRNA, but what's being injected in these vaccines is not human mRNA, it's a synthetic drug, um, which has been modified to actually um, dramatically increase its life in the body because it was designed as a gene therapy and gene therapies you want to last for years in the body. Um, so everything that was done to this technology was to make it actually not break down in minutes, uh, but to last for weeks, months and years. So that was a complete lie, unfortunately, and it's been repeated millions of times um, that, you know, mRNA, um, you know, the, in these vaccines is degraded uh, within minutes. And, and that's completely false scientifically. And that's very clear from the scientific evidence. So I'm very comfortable to categorically say if anyone says that, it's a complete and utter lie. Um, they should be held to account um, and it's complete misinformation. So that's, that's number one. The, the number two um, was, yeah, this idea that, um, you know, the, there's a depot effect. In other words, that when you inject the mRNA, it, it stays in the, in, at the injection site. Again, the reason that was a complete lie and deliberate misinformation um, is that um, gene therapy and the way that the mRNA, because remember it is, it is the same technology, was put into a lipid nanoparticle to deliberately stop it from getting trapped locally um, to allow it to actually have a long half-life and disseminate throughout the body because for gene therapy to work, you need 
you need that material to get as, in, in as many tissues as possible in order to express that gene. So if it was just going to stay very localised, it wouldn't work. And so they, they invested decades of work to, to make this mRNA um, and the particle it's in uh, capable of not being broken down but instead uh, freely going um, through the body. Uh, and, and, again, the biodistribution studies show that that's exactly what it was doing, what it was designed to do. Um, and just because you call it a vaccine doesn't change its, its key characteristics, which were all put there for it to work as gene therapy. Um, and, and so, again, that, that I think is complete misinformation that was deliberately put to people to make them comfortable but, in fact, scientifically is completely false. Um, and so that's worrying when, when, when you have official, what I would call official scientific misinformation um, and what people would commonly call uh, deliberate lies um, being propagated by official sources. Some, some people might be saying, oh, well, if it's going throughout the body, what's the big problem with that? But uh, we spoke to Dr. Peter McCullough about this and, and the lipid nanoparticle, lipid nanoparticle has the potential of going into all cells around the body and it could disrupt the, the body's natural function. So if it goes into, a say, a thyroid cell, it would disrupt that cell, you know, or, you know, a cell that would produce insulin. It would, instead of producing insulin, it instead produces a spike protein. Is this one of the big potential dangers of mRNA uh, and the lipid nanoparticle uh, technology? Well, it just creates the... the you know, a massive level of uncertainty. Like if, if, if something stays in a particular place, you can study it and, and characterise it much more easily. You know, if it's going everywhere and lodging in all sorts of rare cells, um, you know, in different parts of the body, you know, that then normally, under normal circumstances, would necessitate the company before it gets approval to do massive numbers of studies you know, in each of those different tissues and organs to, to prove that that mightn't be harmful in some way, both immediately and in the long term. So, so that's why you do biodistribution studies. It's not um, in itself, um, you know, telling you anything, um, you know, but what it's really doing is alerting the regulators normally under normal circumstances because we're, we're not on operating under normal circumstances, you know, regulators are sort of like the three monkeys um, when it comes to mRNA. But normally what you would do, yes, once you identify all the tissues um, that your drug lodges in, and, and this is, again, a, effectively a drug or drug technology, then you have to, to, to do a whole lot of detailed studies you know, to show that that in itself is not a problem. So if it goes to the ovaries, you have to do all sorts of special studies, you know, in different animals um, to, to prove that that's not an issue. If it goes to the thyroid, you have to do a whole lot of other studies to prove that's not an issue. If it goes to every tissue in the body, you know, normally you'd be doing studies for 50 years trying to prove to the regulators that none of these places it's going is it doing anything harmful. 
Um, that's under normal circumstances, but we're not operating, you know, in a normal world anymore. And that's what concerns so much many of us who are on the inside is there are rules that normally are applied and that's the rule. If, if, if you buy a distribution, shows your drug is, is hitting unexpected tissues, um, you have to go in and prove that that isn't in any way going to cause any harm. And I've seen no studies, zero studies, done by Pfizer or any of the other mRNA companies to, to even start to look at that. They've just, as I say, they're all sitting there playing the three monkeys. And that, that's extremely concerning because whether there are problems or aren't problems isn't the issue. The issue here is the whole system has failed. Failed. Yeah. So even if it turns out mRNA is incredibly safe and, you know, who knows, again, um, it could turn into a great technology. Again, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but what I'm saying is that all the normal checks and balances have all been lost. Yeah. And that's what's scaring me more than the mRNA. That's right, because if the, those systems aren't protecting us, then it mightn't be mRNA that will get us, but the next thing something else. That, that gets put through in the same way. So, you know, like uh, that's a scary world for us to be in. Did they just open the door for mRNA or is this now open slab? Well, they could, that's, that's, I mean, you're right, because it could be simple as, hey, arsenic treats the next, the next pandemic. So let's just inject everyone with arsenic and everyone drops dead because they've not done the checks and balances, you know. And I mean, that's a very, very basic, like, lay term. But that's, in essence, what you're saying. If the safety protocols are dropped, then no one's really protected. The government regulators aren't doing what they're meant to do. So why do we even have them in the first place? Just let the, the pharmaceutical companies make whatever the hell they want, say it's okay, and then just put it into people's arms. That's right, and and you know we know what happens when when that's allowed because you know we get that takes us back before we had regulators, and yep. that's exactly what used to happen. And people did sell poisons um, as therapeutic cures and and kill people, and we've seen that happen in China, um, <laughs> even with their regulator. And obviously, the Chinese, I think they executed their head of their regulator, you know, um, over one of these scandals a number of years ago. Um, at least we know, weren't mandated to dig it. I mean, at least the snake oil wasn't mandated. All these products that did kill people, it's a new level where people are mandated to take those things to save their job. That's next level. And I think that's uh, certainly I've had, you know, expressed con serious concerns, not not just about mandates because, again, in the rule book, if, if you go to the WHO rule book and all the committees that sat pre-pandemic and, and discussed all of these things, including mandates, everyone universally agreed mandates are a really bad thing. Yeah. You know, that you go to the WHO website, yep. read, read their guidelines. They're saying, you know, these things, you know, are not a good idea. They, they backfire. They infringe civil liberties. They generally don't work. Um, they make the community much more resistant in the future to accepting any public health advice. Yep. Um, you know, and they list off. It just goes on and on and on. All the negative consequences of why you shouldn't use mandates, that you, you should, you know, try and, and use everything other than mandates. You know, it's sort of more the, um, you know, the carrot rather than the stick. Um, yeah. 
all of that was ignored. Now, that's just mandates generally. Um, but as you say, when you're mandating an experimental treatment that, that could have, you know, significant negative consequences that's unproven uh, and experimental, um, then, you know, that breaches every ethical perspective that's been laid down since, you know, the Second World War onwards. That That is just something that shouldn't be allowed to happen. Do you know what I mean? And... and so, so there are two issues here. One is, is mandates by themselves are really bad things. Um, and if you're going to do it, do it for a few weeks. That's the WHO sort of final thing is maybe it could be justified for sh very short periods of time under extreme circumstances. But the idea that you could, you could have mandates that go on for years is outrageous. I mean, there is no support whatsoever in any medical you know, um, perspective for that. And then to mandate experimental treatments, that goes against, as I say, some pretty serious thinking that led to, you know, people being executed. That's um, right. You know what I mean? Like, like, like yeah. that, that, that's how bad it gets. And, and unfortunately, all of that has been forgotten or deliberately ignored. And, and that, you know, to me, that's, again, a, a really serious issue that, you know, you, no one's allowed to discuss. That's um, right. And just with, um, sorry, just with some misinformation and stuff that you were talking about as well. So, like, we've all done, like, a lot of people don't do research and stuff like that. We all have done a bit of research because we knew that we were going to interview you, right? So, you know, like, there was an article in The Gu Guardian, um, in The Guardian Australia, and it was done uh, December 21, okay? And um, it said that the TJ, TGA refuted any suggestions that mRNA vaccines um, would um, interact with human DNA or change our genetic code in any way. So they refuted that it would do that, safe and effective. It's not going to do that. We know your vaccine that you produced is very different to mRNA vaccines, okay? But there was a paper um, from Sweden um, and it was co-authored by a, a specialist, but it was called uh, Jan... Uh, by Jan de Morinus. Sorry if I've got the, the wrong there. Um, he's a senior uh, clinical investigator, and he said um, that mRNA technology is worrying because they're find, finding reverse transcription payload in the human chromosome. So that means that it is affecting human DNA um, and changing our composition, whether it be minor or not, it's still changing it. So now the t Australian TGA has refuted that that's happened. How does your vaccine, or what's the differences? What, what, how does yours not do that kind of thing? All right. So, um, you know, the way that traditional genetics was taught was that DNA is converted into RNA, which is converted into protein, and it's a one-way street, um, you know, under most circumstances. Um, so um, it turns out that that's not inviolate. So, in fact, RNA um, can be turned into DNA and, in fact, you have to do that to make the RNA vaccines. But, um, you know, but um, you know, you need a particular protein called a reverse transcriptase, um, which, you know, is in viruses um, like HIV. That's how HIV inserts itself into your genome. Um, so it turns its RNA and sticks it into your DNA. 
Um, but it turns out that humans do can or their cells can express um, reverse transcriptase. Um, so we have a lot of, of viral material in our DNA. Um, it's called endogenous retroviruses. So it's viruses that infected us millions of years ago and decided to stay around and integrate um, with us. And so that's in our own chromosomes, and it does encode um, reverse transcriptase. Um, so it turns out when you have inflammation in the body, um, that can switch those um, endogenous um, genes on. Um, and then now if you have mRNA or like RNA present, it can now get actually um, converted into DNA and inserted into your genes. So... So it's not as clear-cut as it was. And, again, those papers were, were, you know, looking at this in that context. Now, is it important? Is it not important? None of us have any idea. Um, so, but, again, it's, it's, it's a warning sign in science, like, like, you know, because if you believe it can't happen, you don't have to look at it, and that would be the TGA's position. Once someone says it can happen, the company should now be obliged to to show it's either not happening or that it's not in itself a concern. And again, that's not happening. Now, normally it would. So each time something new is found, you know, there'd be an obligation to go back and sort through the science and work out is it an issue or not. So, so again, we don't know if it's important or not, but, you know, it has been now described what the significance is, none of us know. Um, but it's something that, again, needs more research, it needs more attention, and, and it need, we need honest discussion. We can't have people just pretending that paper doesn't exist, which is what, what we've been experiencing where where they just sort of, again, the three monkeys. Is now, is, but, but would, a, would a discovery like that warrant ripping them off the market and not injecting any more people in, with it? No, look, um, again, um, it, it's not the way. that Regulators are like a big ship. You can't turn them around easily. So, you know, it's hard to get them to approve things. Um, it's hard to get them to unapprove things. Okay. Um, so um, which, which is probably not unreasonable, or at least that's under normal circumstances. Maybe it's a bit different when, when they approve things without, you know, in a few days because um, yeah. that's, that's, that's not normal. Normally they've spent 10 years looking at it, so when they do approve it, they're very reluctant to, to, to turn it around and, and unapprove it. I mean, in circumstances like this where they've approved it in a matter of days, then you could argue they should be equally willing to unapprove it in a matter of days if, if, if a significant issue is raised, such as, for instance, the myocarditis, which we still don't know the full extent and significance of. My view is, though, that it shouldn't be so much at the point of the regulator because, you know, when you're dealing with a pandemic virus, there's still people dying of COVID. Um, you know, you could argue that people should just be able to make a choice. You know, I, um, you know I'm happy to have this experimental technology. I know I'm at high risk. Um you know, uh, that's a choice I make. And another person saying, well, I'm not convinced that risk to me from the virus is, is justifies having this experimental treatment. And, and that's the way it should be. 
Yeah. You know, we should all have the right to self-determination and therefore, in a way, whether the TGA approves it or not is not, not really that important. It's a question of, you know, who gets it and are they able to, to make informed consent? In other right. words, are they able to make a, a decision with all the available information and then it's up to them to make a choice? You know, and, right. you know, people should be entitled. Like, I, you know, I don't see a problem with someone saying, I'm happy to get the virus if that's what happens. Um, you know, I'm prepared to take that risk. I mean, you know, we're prepared to, to do all sorts of things in our lives that incur risk um, that other people wouldn't do. I mean, I'm, I'm not for um, banning, you know, skydiving or um, any other sport that in, incurs risk. Just, just you know, people have to make that choice for themselves. Is is the risk worth it? But that's so right. But then you can say it should be the same. But that's right because because basically informed consent. When you have no idea what this particular technology is going to do, would be if a, if you're taking your twelve year old daughter to go and get this to talk to your doctor about this experimental vaccine. And then a parent would turn around and said, okay, so you don't really have any idea of what the long-term effects of this particular vaccine are going to be. Um, you've told me now that it does um, enter the human genome and it will be basically write itself onto our chromosomes. Well, um, well I, I think that's being a bit, pull it back a bit from there. It may right. do some of it these may. things. Okay, no, so, sorry. It's may. not definitive, yeah. No, so this is hypothetically everybody and viewers and, and anyone watching So, because I'm a layperson, right? Yeah. So I'm talking more about on the informed consent side of things, okay? No, and I think you were going down the right path when you said we don't know very much about this because that's yeah. the truth. Yeah. And, and then someone can make informed consent. So informed consent is not telling you that we know everything. It's, it's actually telling you what we don't know, and that's where I've got a problem with what's been happening is they've refused to actually admit all the things we don't know and that's then have claimed they've got informed consent. Well, that, that, that's not the way informed consent works. You have, to, right. you have to admit what you don't know and that's, and right. that's enough. Then the people can make their decision. Okay, so you know nothing about it. I still i am going to have I it. I want it you know, or, or I don't I'm want it. it. Or That's right because if they said then if, she, if the parent then said just to finish off was say that, um, could this affect my daughter's chance in the future? Could this affect, okay, my daughter's chance in the future to reproduce? The doctor would say, look, we just really don't know. And then the parent could say, well, that's too big of a risk. I don't want, I don't want her to take that. What are, you know, 12, um, contracting SARS-CoV-2 at 12 years old, chance of survival and long-term effects is very low whereas not knowing what this might do is a bigger risk. So, therefore, I, that's informed consent, saying, well, you don't know about my concerns, so I won't then choose it for my daughter. And that's, that's, that's where I was going with that informed consent. So, basically, in essence, most because that wasn't really expressed to people receiving the vaccine, not everyone or most people who didn't do any research at all would not have, have informed consent. Well, I don't believe there's been any informed consent, full stop. Yeah. And, and there are also what, what I've seen and, and the way that what they claim is a consenting process was undertaken. Um, you know, that, that 
as as someone you know who does a lot of clinical trials, who who sat on ethics committees, who you know spends a lot of time debating these things, I don't think you could seriously claim that any of this has been done under informed consent wow. in, in 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 the way in which that term was understood three years ago. Now maybe they've reinvented informed consent, where informed consent you don't have to tell people the truth or. Um, that you can give them misleading information and still get informed consent and then mandate them and then ask to, them to give their consent to something they, they're being mandated to do. But all of those make a mockery of informed consent, unfortunately. Yeah, they have um, changed a lot of definitions, but there are all kinds of tests that we would have wanted them to run that they didn't. You know, the, the, the biodistribution studies of the lipid nanoparticles, that was uh, hidden and only done in mice, from what I recall. Uh, you know, the uh, autopsies, um, you know, there are, all there are all kinds of, I'd be curious, in your list of things, if you wanted to actually provide informed consent for people to, to just roll off a few tests that you would have wanted to see, because my, my sense of things is, you know, yeah, there's no possible informed consent without the information. And there are all kinds of tests that even occur to people who aren't even experts in the field that they clearly could do uh, to, to actually provide information about this. And they clearly don't want to know. But, yeah, no, I, I'll correct you on one thing. Yeah, informed consent doesn't require positive information. It, it requires an admission uh, that, that you don't know information. So you could say, I don't know anything about this drug, but I, I, I okay, think it might do something. Do you want to have it? Um, <laughs> we do that all the time. When you do a phase one study, essentially that's what you say. So when, when, when you do have data, um, you, you would present it. So um, informed consent means if you've done a study and you've seen something worrying, then, you know, we've, we gave it to dogs and they got bladder cancer. So in the informed consent, it, it has to identify that. You can't just decide, I don't think it's relevant, I'm not going to tell you about that. Um, there have been cases where that's happened and, again, um, it's been shown that, uh, you know, there's a high level of culpability and, and uh -huh. uh, you know, that, that's a very serious breach. So, but, but if you don't have the information... Uh, providing you uh, openly state we don't have the information, then you can get informed consent. So it doesn't require them to do additional studies as long as they admit they haven't done any studies. If they pretend they've done studies that they haven't done, and, you know, you could argue to some extent there w it was implied that there was more testing done than there was, then, then again that would be a breach of informed consent. So... Um, but informed consent is just about honestly saying what we know and what we don't know. But it doesn't so you require avoid, you to avoid, avoid the information that. as much as you want, which is, from my point of view, seemingly what they've done. I mean, I, I would imagine that if, if, if you were, as, as an ethical person, going to give this to a billion people, you would have asked for a bit more information for that informed consent, I suspect. Well, again, that that's a... a, a you know, what a regulator, their, their job normally would be before something's allowed to be given to, to a billion people would, would be to demand all of those studies and, and documents. But I, I guess, you know, a classic example is, um, you know, giving a new technology to pregnant women. Now, traditionally, that, that has been a really um, difficult 
um, thing to do. Um, so with insulin, for instance, you know, um, you know, we can have a new insulin that everyone's on, but you know, for 30, 40 years, you won't be allowed to give it to a pregnant woman, even though there's no rational reason to believe it would do anything wrong. But that's always been the default. Um, so here they flipped it and said, well, we're just going to assume these things are safe in pregnant women unless um, there's evidence that they're not and we're not going to collect any data. So, um, yeah. so that we, we, we don't, you know, again, this idea that you can avoid collecting any data means you obviate the need to, you know, um, be concerned or worried is, is, is just does your head in. Um, because, again, that's not the way the regulatory world works, um, but it has been the way it's worked during COVID. So there's some really serious fundamental issues um, that I think would only come out with, you know, formal commissions of inquiry. Um, you know, I, I think even a royal commission would struggle, but, you know, they have tackled DNA testing and forensics you know, which is very scientific and I think did a good job of that. So, you know, for for a Royal Commission to actually look at the regulators and ask, did did the regulators seriously fail the population and fail their own mandates um, or, or requirements, um, I think that needs to happen because, because I believe that they have failed their own policies um, in the way they've handled this particular um, technology. Now, Professor Petrosky, unfortunately, we're running out of time, but there's a, you know another hundred questions we could ask you. Uh, but what is the uh, what is the update on your vaccine? I know you have approval overseas, but are we ever going to see it here in Australia? So yeah, we you know we've we're, we're moving forward all the time overseas. So we've now gone from a, a, what's called an emergency use approval, which was, you know, what most of the vaccines got early, um, on to what's a full approval, um, uh, which, which is, you know, um, a lot more paperwork and documentation, as you can imagine, but it's, it's a big achievement. We've got approval in children over five years of age, um, so because we've done paediatric studies now. Um, so, and, and we, we're obviously moving forward in various other countries to try and get increased, you know, the approvals extended um, into other regions, um, which is all a lot of work. Uh, unfortunately, on the Australian front, so, you know, um, it's no secret, um, you know, we um, uh, have had a hard time with the, the TGA um, you know, which I don't believe is related to the technology or the vaccine or, or the data. Um, it, it comes down to politics and who the TGA answer to. Um, you know, we're still doing clinical trials in Australia, so um, that, that's been very active. Uh, we're just, just finishing a few up and starting a few more. Um, so, you know, people can get access to, to the vaccine if, if, if they want to participate in a a relevant clinical trial. Um, you know, we're hopeful, you know, again, it, it, it's, you know, you just, with a regulator who, who's, who, you know, is, is taking a particular perspective, you know, you hope that you, you can just one day have so much irrefutable data that even they can't stand in the way of it. So our view is just to keep collecting data um, and, and, 
you know, mainly working overseas to expand the, the use of the vaccine, demonstrate what a good vaccine it is. I think we're up to 8 million doses so far administered, wow. um, which probably makes it, you know, the most successful Australian-developed vaccine in history. Um, Congratulations. Most, most vaccines, you know, in hundreds of thousands of people, you know, um, you know, it, it, it's rare vaccines that get into the millions, if not tens of millions of doses. So, um, as I say, um, you know, we, we're certainly right up there and uh, we're hoping that we'll, we'll continue to build on, on that base. Um, but, yeah, it's been disappointing, as I say, to be a, to have developed the technology here and not, not have it made widely available. But obviously, you know, we can't speak for the politics of Australia right now, but, um, you know, um, we hope things change in the future, obviously. Well, this is a completely cynical question and also a hypothetical question, but had your vaccine been approved ahead of the other vaccines, what would that have done? What would, what would the benefits have been to Australia, obviously financially, if that had happened? Uh, I mean, people, you know, it, it's, it's um, people sort of find uh, the numbers hard to even believe. So, you know, uh, the answer is, yeah, if we'd got there even uh, a little bit earlier and got the contracts, for instance, that the gave, government gave University of Queensland a $1.5 billion contract um, for 50 million doses of vaccine. They, they couldn't deliver because the vaccine failed, didn't work. Um, but, but that's what the government had already gave them the contract. Um, so, so for a start, that would have saved, you know, um, they, they then gave those contracts to, you know, overseas companies like Novavax, um, you know, Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca. So I think they ended up probably spending six, seven billion dollars that could have stayed at home. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, as simple as that. Um, so, you know, these are big numbers, um, as you can imagine. Um, obviously, from us as a small company, they, they would have been transformative. We, we would now have, you know, a, a massive enterprise here in Australia that would be selling vaccines then outside, using that, that base to um, sell them to other countries. So, you know, if we look at the models of, of the other companies, they were, you know, uh, signing contracts for anywhere between 10 and $100 billion a year of supply that we could have been selling out of Australia to other countries rather than the other way around. So, I mean, yeah, people just think those numbers are fanciful. They're the real numbers. I mean... Uh, so we could you know, have... Just with so if, if the if the Australian government and TJ they backed you and you and you're experiencing success already with your vaccine, so we know that your vaccine is working um, from studies and trials in Iran. So what happens is that could have basically rebuilt Australia's manufacturing um, foothold on the world, not the way that we all traditionally think about it in you know iron ore and making cars and and all that kind of, and, and energy. We could have done it through vaccines in the medical facilities. You could have had a, a massive, massive company um, employing people around all of Australia to, you know, from, from not, not, to, not just from scientists and, and super, super educated people, geniuses, right down to people who, 
who are well respected and need to do the things that need to be done, like maintenance and cleaning and machine operation and all those kind of things, you know. So you could have actually changed the deficit around on Australia with that if, that, if we got behind you. We should, you know, what happened to the government supporting Australia made, Australia owned? Absolutely. And that, I mean, yeah, I mean, one product, and it's, it's, it's true, you know, in pharmaceuticals and cancer drugs. I mean, People just don't understand that, you know, one successful cancer drug can generate $100 billion. Like, how many jobs is that? Like, like, like in clean jobs because, you know, you don't have to dig up a, a million tonnes of iron ore to make that income. Yeah. Um, and that can come, as I say, just from a single successful vaccine or single successful drug. I mean, the government don't have a clue. I mean, I think they... they, they they talk a lot, but when it, it really comes down to dollars and cents, they don't, don't really have a clue of, of how to build industry and which industries, you know, are going to be Australia's future. Um, yeah. You know, and, it, 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 and when you see, you know, what happened with the COVID vaccines and where a tiny little investment could have returned a millionfold and they just turned a blind eye you know, and sent all the money overseas. I mean, it's scandalous. And it's not just the vaccines where they did that. I mean, I've talked to mask companies where they did that. They ignored the Australian manufacturers, bought 10 times more expensive masks from, you know, big US companies. They, they did it with the PCR testing and the point-of-care testing. Um, you know, they, they just deliberately sent tens of billions of dollars of Australian taxpayer money offshore deliberately rather than support Australians. Now, some people might speculate as to why they were so keen to send so much Australian money offshore. You know, maybe it's because it becomes unaccountable and one doesn't see where it then goes. But, yeah. you know, or is it just looking after their mates or is it because, you know, the US government's leaning on them and, they're trying to buy favours, but it makes no sense. You know, this pandemic, you know, apart from all the bad things, there were great opportunities for them to really take, you know, put Australian manufacturing on the map. As I say, there's some really bright, enthusiastic Australian entrepreneurs. I've met a lot of them subsequently and they said, you know, they went to see Greg Hunt and basically said, thanks for coming, now bugger off. I'm signing a contract with, you know, this US company or that European company. And that's what Australian people need to know is that we had an opportunity to really make a difference in the Australian economy and it would have changed the lives of every Australian, um, not to mention just your lives and your company's lives, but would have put Australia back on the map and it would have made a big difference for everyone in Australia, RE taxes and all that kind of stuff with the, the tremendous deficit that we have and all that kind of thing and then basically the government in power, whoever it was between the two, Liberal and Labor, have basically turned their back on it. Yeah, and then again, that's the unfortunate thing. I don't think you see much difference, um, you know, which which of them's in power. Again, they answer to the the same sort of lobbyists and the, the same interest groups, um, you know, have captured, I guess, both both sides. So, you know, we, we were hopeful that we might see some cracks or change with the change in, in governments, both federally and locally, and not, I mean, it, you, you would think there hadn't been an election, 
Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. exactly. Uh, right. you know, <laughs> and, and, and I think, the, again, the Australian people really need to appreciate there is, you know, they are the same people um, just pretending to be on two opposing sides. Just wearing a different uh, hat. But, but unfortunately, and that, you know, those of us at the coalface where, you know, it would make a big difference if there was a, a policy change or, um, you know, one side or the other is more open-minded or prepared to support, support Australian companies. But no, it, uh, there is no difference between the two of them, unfortunately. And that, that, that's really disappointing. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it's head scratching because obviously they supported you know University of Queensland, but you were working for Flinders University, so I don't know how they pick and choose. And well, I'm told that you know they, they they you know because it was a liberal federal government and um, they wanted to win you know Queensland over because it was Labor uh, that uh, that was their their focus, whereas South Australia at the time was liberal, so they they you know, weren't particularly fussed about it, um, you know. So it all comes down to politics. They, you know, yeah. money is a means to an end to a politician. It's all about buying votes. And, yeah. um, you know, it's very disappointing. It'd be great to have politicians in there who were there because they wanted to do something for Australia, not there because they want to do something for themselves and pander to their own egos and yeah. maintain their, their power base. But... I can, I can tell you Australia's had two opportunities now, federally and state-wise, to do that, and they've chosen not to. So it's, it's, it's kind of like once bitten, twice shy, but, you know, really shame on them in, in an essence because they could have, you know, they could have done that. They had an opportunity and they missed it this time round anyway. But um, we haven't spoken too, too much about your vaccine, really, right? And it's, it's so interesting because we're getting back to, back to the vaccine. How is your vaccine with the with the way it's protein based? Okay, we know so it doesn't enter the cell with technology. It doesn't make the body produce the spike protein. Um, how? What? My understanding of it is is that it, it goes in. It's like a dead or dying cells of the spike protein, and then it makes the body create an immune response to it. It's not actually creating it itself. The body. So it, it, it's a part of the spike protein. So, so it's not the virus because the virus is a whole lot of proteins and, and also mRNA. But in, in this case, um, it's, it's a synthetic piece of the spike protein and that's why it doesn't, um, you know, have some of the um, uh, potential um, issues of spike protein, which, you know, people debate. Um, but that, that's if you have the full functional protein potentially. So ours is only a part of that. Um, and then we have a sugar-based component called an adjuvant, which, which is like the turbocharger. Um, it, it actually comes from a natural plant sugar. Um, and, yeah, you put those two things together, protein and sugar, it's sort of what you'd eat in your typical meal, <laughs> Um, you know, so it's pretty, yeah, it, it's, it's extremely um, non-toxic and, and I guess that's one of its great strengths. Um, you know, on the other side, yes, it, it actually does a really good job of stimulating the immune system to make antibodies against the virus and, um, you know, uh, that, that's ultimately how it works. But it does that in a, a, a 
very harmless way. You might get a sore arm for a day. That's about the um, the worst thing that could happen. Um, yeah. But um, but you know, again, we've we've done more animal testing maybe than than any other company because we've. <laughs> We're actually interested in the science, which yeah. I've been shocked to see that <laughs> Pfizer can make a hundred billion dollars and do no experiments because yeah. it doesn't want to, doesn't it seriously doesn't want to know. Uh, whereas we do as scientists, we're always wanting to know more. Now, sometimes you might find things you don't, you know, that, that are negative, but that's no reason not to look. Um, but fortunately, yeah, we've done lots of animal studies, and and you know we can show that. Um, doesn't matter which species it is, you know, hamsters, ferrets, monkeys, um, cats, um, you know, that if they've had the vaccine and, and then you give them the virus and, you know, we've given them different types of the virus, um, not just the old ones but um, things like Omicron and, and Delta and Beta, you know, they, they don't get sick. And, um, you know, that's what we saw in the human trials similarly. Um, you know, you may get the virus. And, again, we've been always honest about this, um, which, which the others actually, again, lie. I mean, none of the, the COVID vaccines actually stop you getting infected. If infected means, you know, having a sniffle for a day and doing a PCR and saying, oh, it's positive. What, what they, they do much better is they stop you that virus getting into your lung and making you really crook. So that's, and, and in fact, you know, ironically, it may be good that the, vir the vaccine doesn't totally stop you getting infected. And again, a lot, this is something a lot of people don't understand is that a lot of vaccines work in that way. So if you take the Japanese encephalitis virus vaccine, in, it's used in Japan in children. They get it when they're very young and then they don't have to get vaccinated for the rest of their lives. And everyone thought, oh, well, it's a great vaccine, it lasts forever. But if those children leave Japan for a few years, go to, say, the US for a couple of years, now come back to Japan, they're no longer protected. So it turns out the, the reason they remain protected is they're being bitten by mosquitoes all the time that, that are carrying Japanese encephalitis. If they've had the vaccine, they won't even notice they're getting infected, but they are actually getting these minor, and those infections are acting like boosters all of the time. Wow. Um, so their immune system stays up for their whole life. Not because it, it's it's preordained, you know, because of that few boot shots they had when they're young, but because it started them on a journey. And so we believe the same thing applies to COVID. And, and this is what our data is, is, is actually suggesting to us that, you know, if your vaccine's major role is to stop someone getting sick or even having symptoms when they get COVID, then the fact that they may be repeatedly exposed to COVID may, may actually be a good thing because it, it will be topping up their immune response without the need for a jab. You know, it doesn't, they, they probably are not getting symptoms, but they won't get a serious infection and they probably aren't transmitting that infection, uh, which is the other intriguing thing, is that we, we see this... Um, when our animals get infected, they, they aren't transmitting it to other animals 
Uh, question about that. Aren't some viruses sort of more stable genetically than others? And is there a danger if you pick uh, an antigen target that's highly mutable um, and you prime the immune system to, to, to like, for instance, the, the original Wuhan strain, and then there's enough drift in the spike protein that you can actually have a negative effect on immunity, some uh, in, in the sense that you have non-neutralizing antibodies that, because I think one of the things that some people are looking at in the data that uh, the people who have been multiply jabbed by the by the mRNA vaccines are more likely to get infected than the people who haven't been vaccinated at all. Yeah, so so the, uh, that's right. If 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 you you know, COVID is an mRNA virus, which means if you you know is, has a great capacity to mutate, as we've seen. So is influenza, and influenza, as we know comes back each year in a different form. So they, the mRNA viruses are, are challenging from that perspective. Um, now, so one is the vaccine may stop working, you know, and, um, and, and put that aside for a minute and come back to this question of could it make things worse? Because that's the one thing, again, we, you know, something not, not working, well, you're back to where you started and, most people accept, okay, <laughs> you know, uh, but, but if you end up worse off than when you started, from a scientist's point of view and a, a regulator's point of view, that, that, that's a big, a big issue and a big no-no. And, you know, that can happen. So we see that with dengue vaccines um, where, you know, potentially we, we call it vaccine-enhanced disease. Um, we see it with, um, or have seen it in the past with uh, RSV vaccines we've, we've seen. So, so this is not um, a, a, just a concept. It's a, it is a reality depending on the virus where, um, as you say, that if you, if you end up with non-neutralising antibodies that can't kill the virus or block the virus, they may help the virus to get inside your body. <laughs> Um, so paradoxically, they're now acting like a Velcro or a hook because they're designed to attach the virus, but they don't kill it. So guess what? They're hooking the virus into you. Um, and so that can happen. Now, there's been a lot of arguments about COVID is, you know, could, you know, will that happen? Because we saw it happen with, with some SARS, we've seen it with MERS. So, so other coronaviruses, this is a, a significant issue. Um, and, you know, I, we've certainly been looking at it closely ourselves. Um, I think some of the data suggests that there is an element of that going on, maybe, as you say, when um, particularly with the mRNA vaccines, when they're wearing off, that looks like the infection rate goes even higher than maybe the control groups. But again, they... No con they've destroyed all the control groups, so so we don't have good. Con and then they say, well, you can't you can't trust the data because um, there's no control group. And you say that you destroyed the control groups and made sure wow. we didn't have. Them. So so it's this whole thing they don't want us collecting any data. But but so there is a bit of a signal there, but I wouldn't say it's definitive. It doesn't seem to be vaccine enhanced disease. In other words, um, where. Like in dengue, it, it can you know it can make the virus lethal, um, you know, 
in, in, in this case, maybe it's just making you more prone to get an infection, but that infection is probably going to be mild. So, so it's not that's nowhere near as bad as if it was actually exacerbating the, the severity of the infection. So I, well, we've not seen any evidence of it increasing severity of infection, so that's re, re, very reassuring. I think we would have seen it by now if we were going to see it. It may increase the risk of infection, but everyone's getting infected anyway. Our data suggests uh, there's so much virus going around. Um, you know, close to 100% of people on the planet have had COVID. I mean, yeah. don't believe the official numbers. When we do surveys, we can't find anyone who hasn't had it. You know, we can do blood tests to test for it. And basically everyone on the planet has, has been infected, um, whether they know it or, or not. So, so if it was increasing infection, it's not everyone's infected. So, so it's not really a big issue. So I, I'm reassured that um, it's more scientifically interesting, but, but there's no evidence that it's making disease worse. Um, that, that would be a really serious problem. And it was certainly something that we spoke about a lot early on about, you know, the need to do studies to explore that. But um, so far I've not seen any any data on that that, that would suggest that that is happening with, with any of the vaccines. So, um, do you know what I mean? So it, it must be something, again, we're fortunate the virus is, isn't as lethal a virus as, as it first looked. And I think yeah. that's the other reassuring thing to reassure people that, one, the virus itself has become much, much less um, virulent and, and uh, you know, um, particularly in, in younger people, it, it really is no threat. I mean, um, you know, still vulnerable people in nursing homes, that, 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 that's, that's the group that the virus is, is a threat to. Unfortunately, it's also the group that don't respond well to, to the vaccines, um, you know, if you look at the mRNA data, we don't have a lot of data ourselves in nursing, uh, you know, in that um, type of environment because we we haven't got an approval. So, you know, most of that data was collected post-approval. So we're certainly interested in collecting it, but we just don't have um, data. But because your vaccine is traditional, a traditional style of vaccine, you could actually kind of like speculate like on what the reactions would be and how it would work with those with with the elderly group of people couldn't you well elderly people have had it so um you know we've given it to um well i know at least one of them um, is the 95 um so um and they're going strong so um you know we know that it, it doesn't cause any side effects in in people of extreme age um and uh, but what I'm saying is, in terms of changing their infection risk, um, you know, you would need to do thousands of people in that age group, like whole nursing homes, and and you know, try and collect data. But that's impossible now because, as I say, they've gone in and and jabbed everyone with an mRNA vaccine, so there's not even a a, a population that. that <laughs> Uh, would be open to it. You could give boosters, and I guess we, that's where we're now looking uh, primarily is the use of our vaccine as a booster because I think, um, you know, there is some evidence that 
repeated doses of mRNA stop working or, you know, they work for shorter and shorter periods. Proteins don't, base vaccines don't, I believe, have that issue. We certainly haven't seen it. Um, uh, you know, so so I think it's a better form of booster. Um, but again, we, that's why we're doing clinical trials in Australia right now is to answer some of because the, the questions just keep changing because the context change, the virus changes, the number of doses people have had in the past have changed. You know, so 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 we we're having to do all these studies um, with no income and no support. Meanwhile, all the big companies are just plundering all the money doing those studies. Um, you know, so it's it's it it really is a yeah very uh, unbalanced or, or unfair environment where we we have to do all the work and get no reward, and they they are required to do absolutely nothing and and just rip the money out of the Australian taxpayer. I mean, Jeez, it, talk it, about who you know, right? Huh. <laughs> it's a uh, unfortunately that's the situation in a lot of things these days but we we better wrap it up because if if uh if we keep going we'll probably be monday morning with all the the questions <laughs> <laughs> we could possibly ask you but thank you very much for giving us your time tonight uh and and thank you very much for all the work that you've done uh not just in the last three years but before that as well is there and look, I mean, we do have questions. I mean, there's questions about uh, a Royal Commission. There's questions about IgG4 that we could ask, but you have addressed those in other interviews. So I suggest people search for those interviews. You have addressed those issues in the past. But if people want to follow you as well going forward, is there any way that they could do that or are you basically off social media? Uh, no, look, um, I, I don't have a lot of time for social media, but, I mean, I am back on LinkedIn after a year exile, um, you know, uh, I uh, I don't. I'm, I'm not a big Twitter fan. Um, you know, um, we do maintain a, a sort of a channel, but um, not. And and I know um, Sharon runs a Telegram um, for a lot of the supporters around Australia. Um, so uh, yeah, we're not big, and so I mean, again, it's just just because we're just too busy trying to do the science and, um, you know, develop the vaccine, it doesn't, doesn't leave a lot of leeway. So, um, you know, uh, yeah, uh, I apologise to our supporters if, 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 you know, if, if, if we don't talk a lot about the vaccine, but also I guess we've been just, just um, you know, we've been threatened by the TGA to even talk about our vaccine, you know, they're going to fine us millions of dollars um, you know they really are out to get us. Um, it, 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 it's 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 pretty serious, and um, you know we've we've had uh, you know some pretty senior lawyers look at it and said this is all just rubbish. But they they can do whatever they like. They they completely unfettered in their power. They can abuse it as much as they like, and there is nothing you can do about it. Um, so, yeah, again, it's unfortunate when you find out that's how Australian institutions are built um, to, yeah. to, you know, um, but, but, you know, in the old days they just didn't abuse the powers they were given. Now we're learning that they have powers we didn't realise they have and they're quite happy to completely abuse those powers um, yeah. and, and, and have been given that, you know, power um, to do so um, by by the Australian government. 
Well, hopefully we can turn that around one day and, uh, you know, hopefully there's always a, you know, a silver lining to things and, uh, you know, this this period has been tough for a lot of people but there has been a lot of good that's come out of it so hopefully we can propagate that into the future. But, uh, look, you know, we'll be quite happy to have you back on in the future as well if, if, if there's any developments in in where you're at with your with your research but uh, for, for your time tonight, we we're very appreciative. So thank you very much. Yeah, no, it's a real pleasure, as I say. Um, okay. Always happy to talk science. <laughs> All right, well, Adam, thank, you thank you very much, very much. Paul. Paul, we always appreciate you coming on. And uh, for everyone that's watched this, if you've really enjoyed it and you feel that you know people that should know this information, please share it to them. So get this message out. So thank you, everyone, for watching, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Cheers.